0: Maybe you can tell us a bit about um, your background because we spoke recently a while ago and it wasn't until then that I realized that you had made the Oklahoma State 350 standard cell library, which was the first standard cell library that I used. And I think probably a lot of people uh, involved will have heard or used it, um, but not know that you're the like the person behind it. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how long you've been involved for? What kinds of stuff you're interested in, and what you're doing at the moment?
1: Well, I my area of research is uh, in computer arithmetic, and uh, I I love algorithms and implementations of digital logic, uh, specifically for computation arithmetic. And uh, you know, I did a lot of that work in grad school, thanks to my uh, fantastic PhD advisor Mike Schulte, and uh, who now works at AMD, but. Uh, you know, it was really great. I wanted to go in, I wanted to try to see how academics was. And so I started working in academics and, um, I quickly got, um, acclimated to people not really having tools or cell libraries to help me. They could give me cell libraries, but they wouldn't really, uh provide them that I could use them in my class or I could use them in research and they made it kind of restrictive not I, I, def, I definitely understand their their you know their you know their thinking on that so uh, I really was kind of really against the wall I didn't know what to do um, so I was talking to a, a friend of mine at University of Utah and I uh, you know I was telling her I, I felt like a pirate you know I felt like I, I could either you know, go down with the ship or try to sail forward. So so I tried to learn as much as I possibly could. And uh, I, I was really fortunate that there was a really fantastic uh, faculty at Stanford, Mark Horowitz, who really hooked me up with other people to learn this standard cells more, you know, how it's done and how it's done effectively. And so even though I'm still doing computer arithmetic, I really wanted standard cells and SOC to, to kind of do that. And so I try to, you know, try to give back to what Mark did to me by just anything that I do for standard cells or anything I try to release to help others. And so I've been doing that for. I did that one, and then I did a. Uh, There's one called the Free PDK. I did a standard cell library for that one. Um, And then I did a couple others for some of the EDA manufacturers. And then now I'm doing the stuff for Skywater and Global Foundries.
0: Yeah, we'll get onto the Global Foundries one in a minute. So another thing uh, that also my viewers might have uh, seen go by is the work that I did with Teo on his um, Adder Optimization. And um, he's one of your students, right?
1: Yes, he is. He's one of my fantastic PhD students um, who, you know, i it's always a great thing when I have students who come in and and uh, they don't think I'm crazy, and uh, uh, you know he was very helpful in trying to do stuff. And I always tell him about open source and what how important I believe it is to the society and like what I do and what you do. I think that's you know it's 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 underestimated on how impact it has on so many people, and uh, and Theo took that you know, that caused a heart. And, uh, you know, I was doing some work with him on adders and he said, well, I'm going to make a tool that I can give out to other people to make adders better. And that's how that kind of came into, you know, into reality, which is yeah. Really fantastic.
0: Yeah. It was really great to collaborate with him on that project on the, cause then I did a bit of work on, um, we taped out the four different topologies on MPW six, I believe. Um, okay. and, I built a bit of infrastructure along with some help from people on the course um, to try to measure how fast they are so we can make a comparison on Sky 130. Um, oh, that's great. So it was a really great project. And um, his work was based off of um, Proppy's work. Yes. Uh, so that he didn't, he could do all of his work in a Jupyter notebook on the cloud. Yeah. And to me, that seems like, when people ask me, like, what is the point of, like, open source um, EDA tools, and aren't they, like, so kind of poor and slow in comparison to the proprietary ones, and and I always say, well, I think that um, there's, there's a couple of accelerants, and one of them is that if academics can share their work by, like, giving a single link to a web page so that lets other people reproduce it and then make a pull request and validate the results and make improvements. And that is actually, um, we can, and that can be done on a PDK that we can actually manufacture, then to me, that seems like it's going to really accelerate the, the, the progress of the open source tools and, um, gives like an, an amazing, um, ability to innovate and do research. And I was just wondering, like from your side is like in the fully academic world. What's your take on that? Does that sound like a reasonable thing to say?
1: Very much so. I, um, I've always been a, a huge proponent that open source is the key to innovation, you know, especially for EDA tools or electronic design automation tools. Um, I, some people in the commercial world that I've talked to, I don't think they they don't, you know, they don't, uh, I, I think agree with what I'm saying, but I do think they help each other. And it's the same way with what you just said is when you can take something and produce it and fabricate it and say, Hey, look how great it is. um, You know, you can help those commercial tools actually get better too as well. And you can push the envelope. Otherwise you're relying on what they produce, which is, could be biased. It could be uh, not considering other things that other people, I think, you know, people are wonderful. They come up with great ideas. Um, You know, Tao's, uh, adders work, you know, he, he was able to outperform some of the commercial tools in some of the synthesis results, um, that we did some analysis on. So it, it's obvious that they can help each other. Um, yeah. I, yeah.
0: And now, and now that work can, can be like used by everyone doing open source, um, not just chip design, but with FPGAs as well. So
1: yes, very, much really
0: so. very great and useful work. Um, yeah. So I'm very excited to see how that progresses and yeah. like building on the work that property done with the kind of, um, developer experience side of things yeah. making it really easy to experiment without needing to install loads of stuff on your computer.
1: He is another one that's like also very helpful and he's so nice too. And yeah. just extremely, you know, I can help you. And I think what he's done too is also very innovative.
0: Yeah. So, um, we were having a, a call um for my course we have a weekly call and chat about stuff that's going on um and we were talking about the the new open source pdk from global foundries uh, gf 180 or glofo 180 i quite like glofo <laughs> um and a bunch of questions came up in the in the call, and then I just reached out to you and said, "Could we like do an interview?" And you like immediately responded, "Yes."
1: <laughs> so thanks very no much worries. for
0: that.
1: Um, no problem. And Thank so you. let's
0: let's get started on some of the questions from the people on my call. So, um, th- the first one was: When you are teaching the design of standard cell libraries, what do students struggle most with?
1: Um, that's a great question. Uh, I think um, one of the more difficult things to understand about standard cells is that they're not like traditional layout they're they're meant to really work with the eda tools so they're playing layout um where they're designed so that all the pins can actually connect together and um, all the tools can interface to them so there's they can be slightly larger than a optimized custom layout um, and so you have to really craft them so that they always adhere to these options and so i think um, you know uh, having that difference is sometimes students don't really understand that process and then once i explain them how that's working they they kind of get it then that oh these are like it, it's kind of like saying i'm i'm providing a generic map of the of the city and um, you know it's it's it may not be accurate but it helps everyone get to the right destination and then i think mm-hmm. another challenge too is is this understanding how uh, standard cell libraries, typically you, you characterize them, which means you run SPICE um, thousands and thousands of times to get information that the system and chip tools can use. So understanding how to get that information into the characterization tool, and then uh, you know, is it the right information? Is it the wrong information? So for example, you can forget a parasitics uh, capacitance resistances um, if you don't incorporate those, those can really, you know, cause your characterization not to work really well. And so, once students understand that all these things help um, get that right information, then it it helps them go forward a little bit better.
0: Great answer. Um, okay, next question is: uh, what do what do you think engineers least understand, um, but should know about standard cells?
1: Uh, another. Your questions are fantastic. So it's great. I, I think uh, one of the things that most people think of is that if there's a standard cell library out there. It, 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 you know, It's always correct. And it's not always correct. Uh, typically, good standard cell libraries have, you know, good characterization, but they also have multiple corners. And, uh, you know, if you don't have the right information in those standard cell libraries, they can actually be mistaken and you can get really bad information on it. So I think uh, good standard cell libraries involve good design and good testing to make sure that they're actually created well, as well as everybody can use them. Uh, You know, I make mistakes and everybody makes mistakes. Um, You can forget to include parasitic effect and, you know, if you don't give it out to the public, nobody will see that. And so I, I think you know, that's something engineers kind of at least they don't really understand is that they think oh I got a stand cell library this should work every time doesn't always work all the time It uh, could have some issues yeah
0: and um, just for people watching this if terminology is mentioned like I was just thinking when you mentioned corners uh, I remember yes. when I was getting started that was like a I don't know what that is I have a terminology section on my zero-to-asic-course.com website. So if you just uh, go there and search for any terminology we're using um, and that will hopefully uh, uncloud any issues. Yeah, um, I apologize yeah, so for No, no, no it's, it's fine. I just got to um, uh, keep an eye on what... Like, even though I'm only kind of two years into this, so I'm not exactly a beginner anymore, that I remember when I first got started, there was so much terminology. And I was like, what is a corner, the corner of a wafer, but wafers around? What does it mean? So, uh, yeah. Um, So next question was, uh, what is your tool flow when you're building and characterizing a standard sign library?
1: That's a great question, too. Uh, So I I love open source tools. Uh, That's what I, you know, I think that is what is the bread and butter of everything that we do. So I try to create layouts uh that I in magic which is an open source tool developed by Tim Edwards or it was originally devised by John austerhout who was at Berkeley and now Tim Edwards who's done a tremendous tool um for a layout editing. And so I use that tool to create all the layouts from uh the PDK from a given schematic and so I'll take the schematics, I'll put them into a tool called X scheme, which is an open source tool. Um, and then I'll, I'll use the magic layout to go back and forth to try to figure out how to best to make the layout. And what we typically do is we try to make the cells an, uh, a set height and not all standard cells are the same height. Like there are some standard cells commercially that have different heights inside. Um, but traditionally like open source standard cells, they typically have the same height. And so uh, we measure the height in this term called tracks, and tracks are uh, defined by how, how high they are. They're usually like 7-track, 8-track, 9-track, 12-track, and um, they're usually based on the pitch, which is the distance between pins or metal layers. And so we try to create that uh, track height to fit everything, all the cells in the same height. Now you can imagine like something like an inverter, which is a really great gate, but it's very small. Um, and then if you make the track too small, it makes it difficult to make the more complicated ones like uh, the flip flops. And so once we create the layouts um, and we'll typically do like maybe five to eight layouts of gates, and then we run it through a characterization tool uh, to kind of figure out, uh, the performance and it runs spice multiple times. Uh, um, we are working on an open source version of a characterization tool, but right now we use a commercial tool for characterization. Um, until we get that open source tool, we'll continue to do that until that. Uh, but we try to create the, um, libraries or the information, which is usually in something called a Liberty file. Um, and then that's used in the place and route tool. So we'll, Then we'll test it, see if it works. And there's always, it doesn't work. There's always, uh, you know, you put two cells together and there's some DRCs or you didn't count for something. And so you have to go back to the drawing board and then you'll keep on going back and forth. And then we'll add more cells. And this, the last, uh, I've been doing it for a while, so it's a little easier for me. The last, uh, the 180 cell library we just did took us about two months to do, um, to create all the the different tracks, and we created ones for 9-track and 12-track.
0: Cool. Great answer. Um, So I'm going to just jump to another person's question, because it fits quite nicely in here. Um, Sure. uh, How many cells are enough cells? Because I think most people who've done a bit of digital design know that you can basically make all digital logic out of a NAND gate. Yes. and then if you have a flip flop, then you can build everything. So flip flop and a NAND. So like yeah. how much is enough? Like, um, yeah. uh, the question is how many cells are enough cells? You can cover all the functions with F flip flop and NAND, but things improve adding more logic functions, often increasing in complexity and drive strengths, but what's the marginal improvement of adding the 10th versus the hundredth cell right. and how do you decide the optimum number of cells to design?
1: Yeah, it's a great question too. Um.
0: That's so, from Thomas uh, Perry, by the way. And the previous uh, question is from Eric.
1: Thank you, both of you. That's really great. Uh, it's a fantastic question, because I don't think it's answered anywhere. Um, as of yet, I, I do feel that commercial tools know the answers to many of these questions, but they're they're less likely to give that information out. Um, but typically the answer is that it really doesn't matter um, uh, what We traditionally do is we try to make the correct number of cells that support open source and commercial tools for high-level synthesis and each high-level synthesis tool uh, sometimes called hls um, will have a minimum number of cells that they want in a library Um, and there's lots of reasons for that they're really more theoretical in nature but uh like i think some tool manufacturers have like five cells that they want, um, which I thought they were, I think they're like NAND, NOR, D flip flop, uh, inverter, and one that I didn't realize XNOR, which seems kind of a non-intuitive. And then beyond that, it really is just I think there's minimal, it needs a lot of study to be done on how that's being done. So I think who knows what the right answer is? Uh, commercial tools um, or commercial libraries will have thousands of cells. Um, is that necessary? I yeah. don't know. You yeah,
0: because I, I, my, I only have experience with open source tools and the open source PDK, which is sometimes a limitation because people ask me like, "What's the difference between proprietary tools or whatever?" Yeah. Um, so I don't have many data points to go on. But I was interested. You know, Sky One Hundred and Thirty, the, the high density cells that are the default ones. I think we've got about 150 cells in yeah. the library, and um, it looked to me like when I f- uh, did a very quick check of the uh, GlowFO 180 that it's less than that. It's more like 70 yeah. or 80.
1: Yeah, it's a lot less, and mm-hmm. I think it. There's this is one of the other reasons why open source tools are extremely important. Is that you know I think the more that you can put out there, there needs to be studies on what's the right number of cells. What if you vary the number of cells um you know will it be better for your design or less you know will it cause more errors later when it's fabricated these are great questions that i think is a real reason why open source is so important yes and that's why i try to put everything out there so that other people can use it and then uh, see how it works
0: yeah it would be cool to be using a a standard cell library that uh, you've designed on the uh, on real silicon so maybe we can jump to that quickly um, sure so you're working on a standard cell library for the gf 180 yes. process at the moment right and th- there's yes. already a set of standard cell libraries so why do we need another one
1: so it's a great question too um so um google contacted me about hey can you create an open source version for gf and i was like yeah sure no problem and I think one of the reasons why they want that is it'll be completely open source. I'm not sure who created the other one from GF, and there may be some NDA re- you know, requirements for that. And then I also think that the GF library um, doesn't have the right voltage. I think it was five volt, um, and they wanted one for 3.3 volt. Um, and so we wanted to create for GF and there's three sets of GF cells, I think there are three PDK. There's a GF 180 MCU, GF 180 IC and GF 180, I think light or something like that. And so we went to create libraries for all three of those technologies that are not currently available. Um, and then also make them public source, open source.
0: Great. Maybe, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to uh, characterize them when when they're ready. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so um, maybe we can talk a bit. A, a question from Farhad was: um, How far are we in terms of open source tools from the commercial tools, uh, and how far away uh, do you, from now do you think that open source tooling will be competitive? And I guess maybe that also ties in to a, another question for Eric, which is, can you share any details on the open source tool called Liberate, which I think is yes. the the alternative to the the proprietary one you're using?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think um, I think with a lot of the work that Google has done, as well as Skywater, that really helped spur the whole industry that kind of, or not the industry, but the a lot of people like like what you've done, which has just been amazing. Um, to create this open source initiative for a lot of people. So I think the more that that gets out there, the more that it will be more closely tied to what commercial tools can do. I still think there's a ways off. um, And I'm thinking maybe five to 10 years um, that we'll see more of the open source tools might even outperform more of the commercial tools. Um, However, I don't think they'll ever totally surpass them and I as I said before I think that they should sit in the same ecosystem um, and that if a commercial tool sees an open source tool, it's a really great tool hey maybe we can do the same in our commercial tool and they should help each other um, and I think you'll you'll see the more of that as we go forward um, in the future and then I think the other question was related to what was the other question it was um, that open source yeah so. We're working on an open source version of Liberate. Liberate is the tool from Cadence Design Systems that we use for characterization, which has actually gone through, I think, three or four different naming structures, which is typically for commercial EDAs, and they've settled on the name Liberate. And so we I think we're about two to three months away. We have a version that is working kind of now, but it's not very, uh, there's a lot of bugs in it. So we're still trying to figure out those bugs but we hope to have this uh, open source version that we run in Python um, available that people can use it for all the libraries that we create. Um, and it'll um, I'm also trying to do it for the previous libraries that I've done too, so that you can see that it's competitive with what Liberate can actually do. And um, you know I'm always inspired by people like yourself and Tim Edwards, whose contributions are just uh, tremendous, you know, in what we can do. As long as we work together, I think that's really great. And so I try to, my goal is to do something like what Tim did with magic is try to create something that anybody could use or benefit from, but also improve and create it completely open source. And so I think next two to three months, I'll have something that'll be publicly released um, on the uh, GitHub site.
0: Great. It's actually a question I've had quite a few times is people are saying, I want to design my own standard cell and then use yeah. it in the flow. And that's, it's actually quite a complicated thing because you've got to draw the standard cell and then characterize it. And then somehow you've also got to get the tools to pick that up and understand that it's an option.
1: Yeah, it's like I said, like your great question at the beginning was like, you know, what do students don't quite understand? They, they, they kind of think standard cell libraries are the same as normal layouts. They're a little bit bigger and they are designed to fit into the same structure that the tools can use and so they're uh once they understand that and i think that's why i try to always put all all the scripts that i do all the layouts all the schematics into my repository so people can download them and and then recreate them so yeah there's uh, the opportunity is there for anyone who wants to do that and um, i try to do the same for what tim edwards does to the public, and. As well as yourself, and anybody who's interested, they're more than willing to contact me, and I'm help. I can help them create their own standards cell library too, as well.
0: Excellent. Well, um, let us know in the comments if that's something that you're interested in, and, uh, leave a comment down below. And in the description, I'll leave a way to get in contact with James. So, thanks very much for that, James. Uh, sure. Um, okay. So, uh, moving on. Then, um, here's another question from Eric. Uh, Do you think that the automated layout of standard cells will be competitive with hand layout in the nanometer processes?
1: Um, I don't think so. I mean, there was a lot of... I I mean, when you mean automate, you mean like the automatic standard cell creation or...?
0: Yeah, I think... Yeah, because... I work with staff a bit in ChipFlow, and he has a a a, library, a system called PDK Master, I think, or okay. I might have got the name confused, but it's meant to generate a standard cell library.
1: Yeah, so um, I did some work with uh, uh, a fabulous researcher at NC State called Brett Davis, um, and we wanted to create something called a free PDK, which is a non-fabricable technology. We did this about twenty years ago or so. And uh, I use some automatic generation tools to create standard cell libraries for that uh, library called the free PDK. And I I think they're really great for the larger technologies, but I think for the, as the technologies, the feature sizes are getting smaller, it becomes less likely that they'll be used because there's so many little challenges that happen. Um, Some of the smaller feature sizes use different rules for different because there are three dimensions instead of two and so they have a dual pattern technology where they're looking at different uh, layers in different dimensions and so some of those automatic systems may not work as well but i think that they're still useful and they're still important to the society and so i think they may actually be really great for the future. Um, I know a lot of researchers yeah. are wor- working right now on uh, incorporate machining learning into these EVA tools. And um, I, I know the fabulous work with Andrew Kahn out at UC University of California, San Diego, um, incorporating that into the open road uh, tool. I think that will be, you'll see more of that. And I think that those machine learning things could be translated into automatic generation of standard cells. But I yeah. I do think they're a little bit off. Uh, I think that might take a little bit longer than, um, yeah. in my opinion.
0: Um, yeah, so I got the name of staff's library wrong. It's called FlexCell. And if anyone's okay. watching and is interested to know more about that, I interviewed staff a while ago on this channel so you can uh, check that interview to find out more. Cool. Um, and also let's uh, give a shout out to Open Road, who you mentioned, and it's been Good to see them kind of getting a little bit more active in kind of putting themselves out there. I think there's a a bit like you in a way. You're like it's diff- there's a lot of people doing very important work in the background, and o- often people from the academic side they don't really uh, put themselves out there. So like a open Open Road only just got a like a LinkedIn profile set up recently. So yeah, um, it's it's good to good to see people. Um, a bit more findable and like uh, taking pride in their in their achievements. So that's good. Good to see that.
1: Yeah, I, they are also committed to helping the whole community. I know Andrew Khan and then Tom Spyru uh, yeah. are really great at trying to help push this whole open road thing, which I think is yeah. ne- much needed.
0: And their tools are absolutely central to uh, the open lane ASIC flow. You know, it wouldn't exist yes. without them. So it's important yes. to acknowledge that. Yeah we're all uh, building on the shoulders of other giants. Yes.
1: But I, okay. I think, you know, what's great about us is we're, you know, it's it's a it's a family. We're all working together uh, to help each other. And I think that's important. I don't think commercial tools have done that, uh, you know, before this. And I think they're starting to realize that they can gain a lot from open source.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there's loads of opportunities to get involved as well. So, yes. Yes. Yep. Um, all right. So... Um, here's another question. Are there any circuit families from the past, like dynamic logic, past transistor logic, domino, multi-output, etc., that deserve new attention now that Moore's law is slowing down?
1: Yeah, that's another fantastic tool, uh, question. Um, I, I personally think that this is a really great question because I tell my students all the time that the best innovations were innovations that came earlier and that maybe people forgot about them. And yeah, like big, um,
0: asynchronous logic. I, I just, yes. I, someone was talking about that on, on Twitter the other day and posted a video, which I watched. I think, and it was in, um, Matt Guthouse was the person that facilitated the interview. I'll post a, um, a link to it in the description. But it was like people kind of, it was like a, a big useful thing. And then it got completely forgotten because of needing to reduce noise and using a clock. Yeah. Yeah, uh, But when people were hand wiring backplanes, and then that that just became the status quo. And even though now we can do like very low noise and everything is like incredibly small and predictable. And so probably
1: yeah.
0: noise wouldn't be a problem like it used to be. But um, everyone is now like on the clock all the time. And so you lose like these potential benefits of being created once and then forgotten. So, yeah, I think it's yes. a great question as well. Sorry yeah, to interrupt I think-
1: you. Oh, no, it's good. I think uh, I think those families are very, very important for future standard cell libraries. Um, um, for example, uh, certain libraries have things like gated clock cells, and those are extremely important for low-power domains so that they turn off certain sections of the chip that are not used, um, and then that way they can conserve power for the whole chip as it works. And so uh, getting those technologies to work really needs using some of those circuit families um, to really rely on how to do that. And then that gives a subsequent question is how do you get the characterization tool to see those correctly? Um, and I think that's still um, a challenge. Uh, we did a, um, a gated clock cell for the standard cell library for Skywater, and it wasn't necessarily straightforward um, just because the characterization tool didn't know what it was looking at. And so I think those, those logic families are extremely important. And I think that they'll come back. And so I always tell students, you know, you need to know about history and how to innovate the next generation. So always, always remember those things because they will come back at you and they could help you tremendously.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So that video was um, with Rajit Manohar from Yale. And um it was Tommy Thorne posting that on Twitter, so I'll link that up in the description.
1: Yeah, Ratchet's another great person who's done some mm-hmm. fantastic stuff at Yale, um, who I believe was originally uh part of the original magic uh foundry when he was at Cornell uh and then Tim Edwards took that over, but he's he's tremendously contributed to the asynchronous world, and I think his stuff is really fantastic as well
0: yeah and um his work is open source and it looks like yes. it's something that people can start experimenting with so that would be yes. excellent and yeah another thing that comes up often um but i still i so far haven't seen anything taped out on the google shuttle so if anyone's out there watching and wants to do that or has done it then uh, please get in touch and we can have a chat about it maybe get you on the air and interview you for the for the channel um all right mm-hmm. so um I think we're down to the last, uh, question now, uh, which is a surprise question. Um, do you have any theories on why NVIDIA would make a seven and a half track standard cell library?
1: So that's a great question. Uh, um, I did, like I said, uh, the 12 T and T track, uh, libraries for global foundries for the 3.3 volt MCU. And, uh, one of the things that you see is that you go from 12 to nine is that it it compresses it pretty um, nice you know compactly and so you you really have no room because you're making it smaller so you have to go horizontally and to really compensate for the fact that you're getting smaller so this the 0.5 kind of is indicative for me that they couldn't make it work at seven so they had to go to seven and a half Um, and so the smaller that you get um, the more density you get for the standard cells. And so my guess is that's why they went to seven and a half track. Cause they couldn't make it seven. And we actually tried to make a seven track in the GF cells and, uh, we couldn't do it. So we had to go to nine, um, or we couldn't do it easily. So maybe we'll get to it later, but, um, you see this like where, again, they're all the same height and so they have to really cram everything in there. And that's probably what happened. When they made this uh, standard cell library it's a great question
0: yeah great well uh we've got to the end of all the questions so i just want to say thanks again for your time and for uh, answering everything really well, good to well, thank, get you on the channel and um, well, thank
1: you very much for having me i really appreciate it and thanks to you and your your viewers as well i think we're all important and we all can contribute
0: yeah and looking forward to some more collaborations in the future, and maybe we yes. can do a um how to make your own standard cell library tutorial yeah. together sometime.
1: That would be cool, that'd be great. I'd love to do okay. That.
0: Well, thanks very much again, and um, thanks. uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you, everyone. <laughs>